Welcome to Sophos Security Chat Chat, episode 181 for the 15th of January, 2015. I'm Chester Wisniewski here with Paul Ducklin. Hello, Chester. Uh, the second Chat Chat of the year already. How time flies. Yeah, yeah. It's um, off to a good start the year as far as I'm concerned, though. Uh, from Well, personally, in that you know, workload has been moderate and been able to, to catch up on life here in Vancouver. But on the security front, things haven't really kicked off quite the way I would have wanted them to. I guess I could envision that it might turn out this way, but it wasn't really what I hoped for, which is uh, a little bit of a mess around security and patching and zero days and vulnerability disclosure. And I think we'll talk about that a bit in a moment because uh, we just had Patch Tuesday, which included seven important vulnerabilities and one critical vulnerability in Windows in addition to the Adobe fixes. Yes, when you said that things didn't start out quite as you wanted from a security point of view, I thought you meant MS-15-002, uh, which when I saw it, I thought, what? Is it 1991? Vulnerability in Windows Telnet service could allow remote code execution. I would have thought that if you've got the Telnet service running, remote code execution is the least of your worries. Well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of by design. I, I, when, I, when I saw that bullet, and I just immediately expected it was Oracle Solaris, but apparently it's Windows previous to, what is it? Is it Vistapol? All Microsoft reminds us is that Telnet is installed but not enabled on Windows Server 2003 and not installed by default on Vista and later. If you're still on server 2003, it's there, but it shouldn't be turned on. Sort of a reminder to go make sure you've got it turned off. The bigger question is why the code's there at all. I mean, I would love to see Telnet die with FTP. Um, if we could take both of them out in one move, then I think the world might be a better place. There were eight bulletins this month. They all relate to Microsoft Windows, so there's nothing to do with specific to Office or SharePoint or anything like that. Uh, as you wrote on Naked Security, of course, Microsoft is no longer giving any advance notification. You think they could have said last week there are no patches for Office, for SharePoint, for all the other things, for Link, all the other things that sometimes get patches. That might have helped in planning. But it's only the Telnet one that's considered critical, and that's the only one with a remote code execution. All the others are either elevation of privilege or security bypass. Oh, and there's a denial of service. Well, I guess to a degree, you could assume every month that everything you have running Windows is going to need to be touched because there's always a, a Windows vulnerability of some sort that's generic, that's not necessarily Internet Explorer, which means even your Exchange servers and your SharePoint servers and your SQL servers and whatever else you might have out there are always going to have some reason that they're going to need to be touched. And maybe that's why they've discontinued the service. They called it an evolution of security, didn't they? And in your article on Naked Security, you took some issue with that choice of word. It does seem a little bit of a retrograde step, and I absolutely agree with you. As people who've commented on your article on Naked Security are saying, for all that they weren't worth much, like, really, does it cost Microsoft that much just to tell me how much I'm likely to be downloading? What components in my small network are going to need updating? Surely you could tell us just a few days in advance if indeed this whole idea of the monthly cadence, as they call it, is important. Why not help us plan when the pedal's at the bottom of the stroke, not at the top? Well, I think a lot of folks suspect this is directly related to the dismantling of the trustworthy computing initiative within Microsoft and, and tightening the belt up and 
you know, a lot of the folks that you and I have uh, had communication with over the years are either no longer with Microsoft or have moved to other divisions now. So there's there's certainly um, a lot of changes afoot over there, and we'll see how it all plays out in the long run. Now, Google seems to have taken uh, a bit of an issue with Microsoft, and this is more what I was referring to with my concerns around the kickoff of 2015 here, which is two zero-day vulnerabilities dropped on Microsoft by Google. Fortunately, both of those are fixed in this Patch Tuesday update. I think you'll find the zero day from December is fixed in MS15001, and the one that was uh, released just two days ago was in MS15003. Um, now, you wrote that up. I mean, are these really super critical, or is this more of sort of setting the stage for a, 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 bit, of a, a bit of a fight? I'm not quite sure, Chester. I, I presume that... Google has the best intentions, but in this particular case, Microsoft had quite a robust response to Google's automatic, it's 90 days, we're going to tell the world and give a proof of concept. Microsoft had already told Google, you know what, you're going to tell the world on the 11th of January and two days later we're going to patch it. Wouldn't it be the decent thing to do just to delay on those circumstances? And Google's response, nope, that's not how it works. You knew when the deadline was. It's 90 days. You should have started earlier. Maybe under the circumstances, Google could have stuck to its 90-day auto-disclosure by just telling people about the vulnerability. Maybe they could have delayed the proof of concept a couple of days just to show willing. It did seem a little bit petty, if you ask me. Well, you know, it, it, to me as well, but I, I, I'm really confused by this whole thing because I'm looking at it and I'm going, well, arguably this shows how serious Google is about secure software, protecting the community, making sure that we're aware of vulnerabilities and risks with using things that have flaws in them. And then at the same time, they've silently dropped support for Android versions previous to KitKat, making everyone vulnerable with no notification at all. The bug reports at 15 paces argument between Microsoft and Google, of course, happened on Sunday, the 11th. Uh, Patch Tuesday was on the 13th. And on the 12th, Todd Beardsley of Metasploit wrote on the Metasploit blog about a response he'd had from Google where the team submitted a... It was a bug in the web rendering part of Android 4.3. But Google came back and said, oh, well, actually, you know, thanks for submitting the vulnerability report. We're not really doing anything with that anymore. If you'd like to provide us a patch, we'll sort of pass it on to our OEMs and handset vendors, and they can use it if they want. Um, but we're not going to be doing any patching. So, you know, if Google really is, as you say, that concerned that it will tell the world after 90 days when somebody hasn't fixed a bug, you'd think that they would be a little more proactive about all their very many users out there still using Android 4.3 or earlier, more than 60% of them, if you don't mind. So I really hope that Google reconsiders that decision. Yeah, I've been in the software business for more than 15 years, and I can attest to the fact that supporting software, the older it gets, uh, is challenging and that you want users to move forward so they can be on your latest, greatest base. But abandoning people with no notification, um, that kind of thing, I just find deplorable. I mean, I, I complained a few years ago when Apple was selling $99 iPhones that they discontinued about six months later and said they wouldn't upgrade iOS any longer. And, and in Google's case, I, I find it to be the same type of thing. And I just, uh, I can't accept that behavior. My, my dad doesn't have any reason to believe 
that his smartphone that he purchased from Verizon would have any less life expectancy than the television he bought at Best Buy or the car he bought from Ford Motor Company. Um, this is a thing, and I'll use it as long as it works, and if I have a problem, I should be able to go to the place where I got it, and they'll help me fix it. And if we're going to have an expiration date on it, it should be clearly labeled on the package, this product is expired and is no longer supported. And in fact, with Google's devices, it looks like about half of them on the shelf at the store already would be expired before you ever buy them. Yes, I, I mean, this is a completely unscientific test, but when I read that blog article from the Metasploit guys, on my way to work this morning, I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'll pop into a high street electronics store, not a mobile phone shop, just a place that sells computers, printers, hard disks, scanners, that sort of stuff. I'll go to the budget section and I'll look at the first three Android devices I see and the first three cheap, that's sub $300 laptops and netbooks that I see. All the netbooks running Windows 8.1. All of the Android devices running pre-KitKat. And as you say, there's no suggestion that, by the way, your browser is vulnerable and will remain vulnerable forever unless you patch it yourself. And the irony in all of that, of course, is Google does allow the handset vendors to lock down the handsets, so you can't patch it yourself even if you want to build Android from the open source components all by yourself. Right. In other news, the Twitter and YouTube accounts of the U.S. military's central command, the CENTCOM account, uh, was hacked on, on Monday, and uh, there was quite a brouhaha in the American media over you know, this whole U.S. military hacked by ISIS fighters, which um, is a bit of an overextension of what really happened. I mean, I guess I was a little surprised that U.S. military central command needs a Twitter account, but since they have one, what can we learn from this? I mean, it is just a Twitter account, right? It's not like they broke into the super secret intelligence agency and, and, and knocked out a bunch of documents. What worries me about the whole CENTCOM thing is that people may look at it and go, wow, now that's a problem. The U.S. military got hacked. The crooks, I mean, obviously, they're going to be, they're going to be dedicating their attention on the big guns. They're not going to be interested in me. But your Twitter account is worth money to the crooks. And if they can take it over, they will then what happened to CENTCOM, they'll get over that. They're the U.S. military. If you're a small business, an automotive repair place, you might lose a couple of customers and it's hard to get them back. So, you know, really be careful, pick proper passwords, and if you can use two-factor authentication, please do so. It makes it so much harder for the bad guys. And to wrap up our, our vulnerability discussions, uh, OS ten which we haven't talked about in a while here in the chat chat when it comes to vulnerabilities. Not that there hasn't been any, but uh, somehow it's just escaped any kind of uh, severity to, to pass the threshold of getting out of the chat chat. There's this one about uh, Spotlight kind of accidentally possibly leaking information that you didn't intend. Um, I mean, this isn't the first time I've seen this on OS X where, you know, there's a setting somewhere where you say, don't share this, like my location, for example, and then something accidentally leaks it. We have kind of a repeat scenario here, don't we? Yes, we do, Chester. And it just is a huge reminder how difficult it is to have privacy and security settings which apply everywhere. And what happened here is that in the Apple Mail app, there's an option which I think is off by default, as it should be, that lets you prevent emails that contain image links from fetching those images because that's a great way for marketers, including spammers and scammers, 
to do uh, web bugs, web beaconing, where they the, fetching the image is not actually to display anything. They look in their web logs and they see what IP number you used and what time you accessed the image. They know when you read the email and where you read it. But if you search for the email, Spotlight, instead of then taking you to the mail app, it actually uses a separate component of OS X called Quick Look. And Quick Look goes, ooh, I'm not just going to show you the text in the email, I'll render it, I'll create a little tiny preview window so it looks really cool. And Quick Look doesn't bother to honor the setting in the mail app. It does go and render the image. And really it is that just that, that dilemma about having two parts of the operating system which are configured separately and where the privacy setting of one doesn't apply to the other. Right. I guess you could use a different email client. If your emails aren't in the Apple Mail app, you won't have this problem. But uh, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of good email clients out there. And, and what usually happens is that drives people to using a, a web-based email service, which uh, personally I don't really recommend. I did hear, though, something that was going to be quite disappointing to the software sales team in Vancouver, which is that uh, apparently poker has been solved. There's apparently no reason to play it whatsoever. There's an app for that. There are some uh, mathematicians or computer scientists at the University of Alberta and a, a coder out of Finland who published a paper whereby they sort of solved one particular sort of poker. And by solved, doesn't just mean they wrote a program that can play really, really well, uh, as is the case with chess. Chess isn't solved because there are just too many different possibilities, different paths that any game can go down from any point. It's more manageable in poker, so you can kind of analyze every way that every game can play out, almost. So, you know, fold your hand and don't play anymore. It turns out that actually all they've analysed is one particular sort of one particular game of poker. They've cracked heads up, limit, Texas Hold'em. That's where you have only two players in the game and the betting is strictly algorithmic and limited. So your poker evenings are still safe, but it is a big reminder that even problems that have a huge number of combinations that you wouldn't even have dreamed of approaching perhaps 10 years ago because it was just too complicated, can fall as things get faster, which is a long-winded way of saying attacks only get smarter. I'll, I'll keep that in mind if I'm ever uh, presented with the opportunity to play five-card stud with the NSA. But so th thanks for that research, Paul. Yes, always have three guys in the game. <laughs> Never play heads up, which is where there's just two guys. And that concludes Software Security Chat Chat 181. As always, the latest security news is over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. You can get all of our podcasts on iTunes via RSS feed, on the TuneIn app, or over at soundcloud.com slash And until next time, stay secure!